Welcome to the Pursuit of Wellbeing podcast. My name's Maria Brosnan. I'm the founder of Pursuit and your host for the show. This podcast is dedicated to providing wellbeing information, inspiration, and support for teachers, leaders, and school staff around the world. Before we get started, you can find a video version of this episode on our YouTube channel, Pursuit of Wellbeing. My guest today is Emma Webster. Emma is an employment solicitor with over 15 years experience advising employers and employees. She's currently a consultant with YES, having previously been the CEO, a charity which provides employment law advice focused on avoiding litigation and resolving disputes. And I noticed on your website, Emma, your strapline is life's too short to litigate. She's worked with Heads Up, providing training in schools for the last eight years, and I've had the pleasure of working with Emma on many occasions with Heads Up. And Emma also sits as an employment tribunal judge. Emma, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Will you tell what does YES stand for? I'm curious. So YES stands for Your Employment Settlement Service, which is obviously a bit of a mouthful. Um, and we, it sort of also derives from a very famous mediation book, which is called Getting to YES. So the woman who founded it, Camilla Palmer, thought that, that was a, a, an appropriate um, name and it's, it, it's great. Yeah. Um, and what we do is we provide employment law advice like anybody else. Um, so we're all expert employment lawyers, um, but we only focus on trying to resolve disputes without litigation. We never go through the litigation process. So we try to have pragmatic conversations at an early stage that tries to sort of bring things and we take try to encourage people to have conversations that take the heat out of the situation um, as opposed to escalating it to sort of rights-based I'm you know demanding I'm you've discriminated against me so give me some money type conversations it, we, we try to sort of subtly move away from that and tell me just for people who might not know what does litigate actually mean so litigate means actually going through a court process. Mm-hmm. So um, we, we don't help with the actual tribunal process. Um, what we, we try to settle things either whilst a litigation process, the tribunal process is ongoing, or before you've even got there. We try to even stop you having to get there. Um, so yes, that litigate means actually go to court, court right. papers being served, etc. And that sounds, it sounds scary and yeah. Uh, like well, a, it's very stressful and it's very expensive often. Yeah. Um, and if we can keep people out of there, then I think that's a, a good thing for everybody. Yeah. Well, Emma, you've had a lot of experience working with schools and senior leadership teams in schools. And um, I'll kick off with a question from a deputy head that I know. And he's Andrew Cowley on Twitter, Andrew underscore Cowley 23. And his question is, there's a duty of care by governors to heads and from heads to their staff. So what, in a legal sense, should wellbeing look like, especially during COVID-19? OK, um, well, I'm going to give a sort of fairly typical lawyer's answer at the top of this, which is I don't think legally wellbeing looks like anything because it's not a recognised sort of legal concept. Um, but um, I think the first thing that I often say to people who come to me uh, who feel that they're being bullied or have been accused of bullying is that there's no law against bad managers. Um, it doesn't exist. Um, and so there's no sort of freestanding obligation to be nice to people. All right. 
Um, um, I just want to pick up that word. Sorry, Emma, I want to pick up the word about nice because yes. that's often equated with well-being and I want to just see if we can, we're not really talking about being nice, are we? No, we're talking about, I mean, you know, I think we're talking about being a reasonable yeah. And, you know, reasonable employer who looks after its staff, because after all, particularly in schools, we're in a caring environment. You want to make people feel comfortable being at work. You want to make people feel safe at work. Um, and you yeah. want your staff to be able to be well enough to turn up to work. And so there is an element of, of an absolute need to make sure that your workplace, whether you are the manager or the person being managed, is a, is a safe and um, place to be. So there's lots of health and safety legislation around safety and there's all the COVID regulations. Um, I don't think there's a need for me to, to chat in detail about all of those. And I'm sure your heads and managers will be well aware of what the health and safety legislation is around it. The COVID regulations are a minefield. Um, they're changing from week to week, so again, probably not that useful for me to to talk about those today um but from a well-being point of view it's what what do you need to do to make people feel all right coming into work every day um, and to talk to that so what 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 is that legal obligation so there's a legal obligation well to comply with health and safety stuff absolutely and the covid regulations absolutely but from a well-being point of view you are obliged not to discriminate against people um, and in the, the the most sort of obvious way that that might manifest itself um, at the moment is is if somebody is is disabled for the purposes of the equality act now disability isn't this is not a medical definition it's a legal definition when we're talking about the equality act um, and it's somebody who suffers from an impairment um, which has a significant negative impact on their ability to carry out day-to-day -day activities. Now, being lawyers, we've fought over every bit of that definition, um, and I may even have had a couple of the words wrong there. But essentially what it means is an impairment is either physical or mental. The mental disabilities don't have to be a sort of defined um, diagnosed so it doesn't have to be depression it used to be before the equality act you used to have a list of things that qualified it and but it can be uh, any sort of impairment and anxiety i think would absolutely fit in there but it also has to have a significant impact on their ability to carry out day-to-day -day activities and it has to be long term and what that means is lasting a year or likely to last a year, all right? So if you've got somebody who has a sort of specific, very narrow two weeks off because of anxiety in response to a significant life event, you know, um, then, or a significant work event, it's very unlikely that those people are going to be considered uh, disabled for the purposes of the Equality Act. And therefore you have no different obligations to them to any other member of staff it's only if they are disabled now the tricky bit is it's not for you as a manager to define whether somebody is disabled and in fact it's not even for a doctor to define it the only people that can say whether or not someone's disabled um for the is it is the tribunal 
<laughs> but you don't want to get really? there. Really? Well, hang on. Well, let's wind back a, a bit then. So what if I'm a teacher and I'm really, really worried about and, and highly anxious as there was a piece of research done by the Education Support Partnership and just, just to get... Um, just to get a sense of how teachers and leaders are feeling about um, COVID-19 and, and being in school. And, and over 50% of them felt very anxious and worried about potentially getting COVID themselves in school. There's, there's a lot of genuine fear. Um, so, you know, just unpicking that a little bit in terms of your definition of disability or how, how as a head do I support somebody or deal with somebody who's very anxious and doesn't want to come into school or doesn't feel able to come into school yeah. and there's also that obviously there's the the even more complicated uh, situation where you've got um somebody who might who might be not be particularly anxious on their own behalf but is anxious on behalf of family members who aren't even part of your school community and and that's really tough as well there isn't an easy answer here um i think the way that you support your staff in my view is to try and come up with a consensus at least amongst your senior leadership team about how you're going to keep everybody as safe as possible and how you're going to implement the rules that you have from the government the guidelines that you have um, and from the health and safety executive i mean i think looking as broadly as you can at the resources you've got out there and and making sure that those resources are accessible to all the staff as part of a an engaged discussion with them about what you're going to do in order to make the school as safe as possible for your staff is really important the the, the times when we see people getting really not just anxious because of health and safety issues but anxious about whether or not they're being listened to at work and whether or not that that they are being uh, looked after at work is when communication stops and I know you're incredibly busy as heads and managers but actually if you stop communicating with people for any reason that communication is interrupted because they're off sick the communication is interrupted because they're on maternity leave the communication is interrupted for any reason for, uh, uh, or because you just haven't had time to have a meeting with people for a few weeks then, then that's when people's anxiety levels massively increase because they think that, that they're not going to be helped. Um, and I think that you will all save yourself a huge amount of, of trouble with individuals specifically if, there is a, if you try the best that you can to bring everybody as part of the conversation. So think about engaging with your unions. I mean, obviously, some union reps are fantastic and some aren't. <laughs> um, but I think that, you know, they, the unions have got a lot of resources out there and will probably be very happy to engage with you or with your reps to help find a way that everybody can work with that makes your school feel like a safe place. Um, but there are lots of resources out there. Sharing them with your staff and then trying to make a decision. Yes, the buck stops with the head or the, the governors. As, as, but if you can have brought everybody and said, well, look, this is an impossible situation. I can't guarantee your safety. I can't, nobody can. I can't guarantee how we're going to make this work long term, short term. It's going to change. That, that feeling of constant change is anxiety provoking 
everybody. We're all dealing with it in our day-to-day lives, let alone at work. Um, So anxiety-provoking. And I think if people feel that they are part of the conversation to make the best fit possible, then, then that will remove some level of something being done to them. Yeah, when people feel powerless and something is being done to them, whether it's by their workplace or something happening in their lives, then that's when people get, my experience is often when people get unwell. You make a really great point. And, um, and the point you make about the, the constantly shifting sands that we're, that we're standing on at the moment and the, the changing guidelines from, from the Department of Education, but from the, the um, central government, is, is your point around the head or the school's responsibility to an individual member of staff? So what you're saying is, even though they can't guarantee somebody's status, um, safety at school, if they're putting all of the guidelines in place, then that's the best that they can do. Is, am I understanding that correctly? Yeah, absolutely. Although there are then exceptions to that, which is, okay. you know, that's the sort of general position. But if you've got somebody who's pregnant or on maternity leave, or if you've got somebody who is suffering from a disability, then you might be under additional responsibility to those members of staff because they are particularly vulnerable Um, and you are under an obligation to understand what those obligations are so we i we do a lot of work at yes with maternity action which is a fantastic other charity and i would strongly urge your leaders that if they have got somebody who is pregnant or on maternity leave that they really, they look at that website. There's loads of guidance on what your obligations are because they're incredibly complicated and they in particular, obligations towards pregnant people um, and people on maternity leave were so unclear and have continued, you know, particularly in the first three to four months, they were so unclear because they kept changing. Were they additionally vulnerable, weren't they? All sorts of things. and I would strongly advise people to go and look at that. So understanding what your obligations are there. And then if you've got somebody who is, let's, for example, say that they've been, you know, they just are too anxious to come into work. What are your obligations? How do you know whether you're meant to put something additional in place for them? Uh, well, how do you know? So, so let's just look yeah. at it specifically because it's a very common thing at the moment. If yeah. I'm feeling too anxious to come into work as a, as a teacher, what, what's my responsibility? What's my head's responsibility? How do we deal with that? If I just feel, and, and as you rightly say, I might have somebody at home, a, a, a partner who has a, a condition that I need to yeah. feel I need to protect them from. How, that feels like quite a common scenario, I would have thought. How do we deal yeah. with that? Well, again, um, the legislation that we've got isn't really equipped for these situations. Um, the, you know, again, the guidelines might deal with it in specific cases. So if you've got specific guidelines about it, then then by all means, or, or the unions you knew have agreed specific things. But if you've got, let's say you've got the person, just the individual who you're, who's a member of staff who's off with, with anxiety or feels too anxious to be able to come into work, whether it's anxiety about the journey or anxiety about actually being in the building. Um, you, you, you may be, they may 
be disabled for the purposes of the Equality Act. But I don't think you can be in a position to make that decision. You might want to refer them to occupational health to get an understanding. I mean, if they're that unwell, presumably they're signed off sick by a doctor. And if they're signed off sick, then you should follow your normal sickness absence procedures. But I think if you think, having had a conversation with them, that this is a very narrow, specifically COVID-related anxiety, and if that was removed, they'd be well enough that this isn't something that's sort of got other causes, then I think having a conversation and saying, well, what, what could we do? that would, would relieve that anxiety, because ultimately you want them back at work, you need that resource, um, you know, and what could you do that would alleviate that? So is there a way that, for example, you could let them work a shorter day so that when they're using public transport for the journey to school, it's not as crowded? Is that something that you would be able to manage? Um, and lots of people go, oh, well, if we do that for them, why wouldn't we do that for everybody else and all the rest of it? Well, there's, there are two things to say to that. Um, one is, you, if they're disabled, you're under a legal obligation to do it, to make a reasonable adjustment. There's only what's reasonable, and it may or may not be reasonable, depending on the age of your children and the job that the person does as to whether or not them working a shorter day is a reasonable adjustment or not. But it may well be. Um, but there's also the halo effect, which is, you know, if other members of staff see that you are being kind to a member of staff who is particularly struggling for whatever reason, then I think that that does have a good effect on in terms of how you're perceived generally. And I think if everyone stopped and thought about, well, look, I'm having this significant life event I want my employer to look after me. And I see that they're doing that to other people in these extreme circumstances. And so actually, this is a good place to be um, because they are going to look after me. They are going to stop, take into account my individual circumstances and do something about it. Um, but it is very difficult. It's really hard. And there isn't a right answer here. Um, I think talking to them, seeing if there's a way you can alleviate that, involving them in the planning, or at least explaining in explicit detail what the planning is around it. Um, I mean, I had one woman who was on maternity leave wanting to come back to work. Um, sorry, she wasn't, she was pregnant. She was initially suspended um, because she was seen to be at greater risk, which, you know, um, and she, but she wanted to come back to work. Um, and the the problem was that the the communication between her and her manager about what social distancing was in place and how that could genuinely be implemented in her particular workplace, rather than it just being a tick box exercise, was what kept her away. And because they refused to have that conversation unless she came in. Oh gosh, yeah, yeah. And she didn't feel she could come in until they'd had the conversation. And it was a vicious circle. And they both felt that the others were just being completely disingenuous. <laughs> and probably the answer was somewhere in the middle, but it's that blockage of communication that 
stopped that woman being able to go back to work at all while she was pregnant and had massive impact on her income if she wasn't in the school so it's a different situation but I think it's it's universally applicable um so I think having a conversation try to engage people in the planning try to have other members of staff who are also supportive of you that that you know yes they're trying their hardest and they're doing their best to you know we've been involved in these conversations we can reassure you that everyone wants to stick to these you know these guidelines um because I think that's the other thing isn't it is some people really care about different aspects of the guidelines well that that leads to a, a fantastic point that they're so open to interpretation aren't yeah. they that yeah that you know you could look across a number of schools and see how they're interpreted very differently so differently i mean i've got sort of intimate contact if you like with five schools just through my family life so my children are in two different schools um my brother is a teacher and uh, in a secondary school um and then my sister has kids who are also in, in, in another school in another part of the country and then my brother's got kids who are in another school so sort of every single one of those is interpreting the guidelines completely differently every single one um and you know so we are all subject to completely different rules and regulations around that and it's crazy um you know some are they're all in year group bubbles but then what you know at the primary school ones it's what's pick up and drop off and how that's happening is completely different who gets sent home is different between the school my brother teaches in and the school that my kids go to whether they're playing sport or not differs between the two you know the three secondary schools everything is different um it's fascinating and so that leads to anxiety <laughs> well yeah because if if there are say this set of guidelines and they are so open to interpretation then presumably within even one school there will be disagreement across um how how much should be implemented how should how strictly should we incorporate these rules or should we be a bit more lenient here there's there's just that interpretation leads yeah. to misunderstandings or you know yeah. division across people polarizing views we should yeah. be doing more we should be doing less how do we manage that well this to me is where morality and kindness come in and i think we've all been faced with this even in our own domestic personal lives that different people feel very differently about um how important to them the various different aspects of the guidance are so we've got friends who aren't going out at all and we've got friends who come and want to give you a hug we've got you know and, and everything in between um and i think my feeling is that you have to allow for a certain amount of individuality but actually in those circumstances you've got to encourage your staff to go for the whether you call it the lowest or the highest common denominator depends uh, the highest interpretation of those rules because they are the safest mm -hmm. and therefore that removes that anxiety levels for those people who really either need or want to be as safe as possible and i think that's the best 
way, but and you need to encourage your staff to feel confident in being allowed to say, no, I'm not comfortable with that. I'm not comfortable with, you know, being less than two meters away unless people are wearing a mask. Um, you know, and if you can reason it's reasonable implementation, isn't it? If you can reasonably still have a school functioning that caters to the most nervous, then I think that's probably what you need to do but i think it's very difficult because you're going to have some people whose anxiety levels are to the point where they won't even be in a classroom with a class full of kids and you know can you implement homeworking in that respect you know how how part-time is that person could they deliver their two lessons a week it's unlikely you've got someone who only works that little but you know what is it where are your lines and why are they there i always tell ask people whenever they ask for anything in the why what's why is that important to you why is that important to the school you know what are you trying to achieve take the questions all the way to the end for yourself i'm not saying that you push somebody who's come to see you who's worried although i think that that's a helpful exercise in a kind way but i think if you've got somebody who if you as a manager know why you're doing what you're doing and what you're trying to achieve with that, then you are able to explain that more easily to your staff. Mm. The problem we have is some of these guidelines are so contradictory <laughs> that you probably don't know. I know, I know, I know, I know. And you, you, you used a couple of words here that I don't normally expect to hear a lawyer or a solicitor use, and that's kindness and morality. Not mm. suggesting for a second that you're not, <laughs> I know you very well and I know that you are. But how do we interpret the difference between a legal obligation and a moral obligation? Oh, sorry, is that... No, there's <laughs> a, a big sigh because there's a difficult question. Um... Well, look, the legal obligations are the, the ones that we've discussed, which is you have to comply with the legislation around health and safety and the regulations. That's first. So you have to have a safe place of work. Then you also have to have an obligation not to discriminate against people. Um, and that's whether that's a disability discrimination or it, the, the most likely in a COVID situation that I have come across is disability discrimination and, and pregnancy and maternity discrimination. I'm sure there are other vulnerable groups that where that, that would come in, but those are the two most obvious ones to me. And um, discrimination is complicated. There's lots of different types of discrimination. Um, I think I think the difference between a legal and a moral obligation are, well, if the law doesn't deal with it, then it's a moral obligation, not a legal one. Um, and I think, look, these are extraordinary times and none of us have done this before. Um, and the government hasn't done this before and isn't particularly helpful right now. Um, there is no right or wrong answer here but i think that if you are trying your best to be reasonable and that's a really legal term that's really annoying because it's how long is a piece of string but ultimately if you stop 
and reflect and say, well, is this reasonable in all the circumstances? Is what I'm doing reasonable? And I've fairly taken into account, and it won't be many, but have I fairly taken into account the individuals with special circumstances? And if I have, and I can make special adjustments for them, then you're probably doing as well as you possibly can. Um, And I think that's why making it a collective process where you engage with your staff and your management team, you can't possibly engage with every single member of staff every time you make a decision. Of course you can't. But these are really complicated, difficult rules. You can engage with your um, governing body and engage with your team and try and bring them on board to see them through. And then, yes, every organisation will have somebody vulnerable or somebody who you need to be careful about. But actually, again, if you talk to them, then, then and you just keep on talking to them, then most reasonable people are going to be absolutely fine. Are you going to have awkward members of staff? Yes, but those awkward members of staff are there with or without COVID. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And they would have been awkward about something else if it wasn't this. And I don't know whether you've got specific additional obligations to them because it's so specific to those individuals. Um, But there isn't, the, mor- the moral answer is, I think, we are all going through a really difficult, massively anxiety-provoking time. And all you can do is provide as safe a workplace as you feel is reasonable and being able to carry on functioning as a school as you possibly can. And I can't give you a legal framework for those decisions i'm afraid mm-hmm. emma that's been so helpful we've come, come to our half hour already and i wonder do you have any final thoughts or anything that you'd like to add just before we wrap up um i think my main thing is i cannot stress how important open communication is um i started with me saying that blocks to communication is what causes people anxiety and I'll finish with that if you feel that you're not being listened to or that something is being done to you rightly or wrongly there's always two sides to every single story but rightly or wrongly if you feel that way you're going to potentially put in a grievance um, potentially go off sick when you wouldn't have otherwise or whatever and so if you as leaders can just keep talking to people and yes you may find that you're talking to the annoying squad more often than the people you really want to be talking to but actually right now um i think that that's going to be par for the course for a long time and we need to find a way of making that a normal part of your working day is talking to the people that need that additional support and keeping on communicating with them. Thank you. Yeah, it, it's very much been the theme of the conversation is mm. communication. And yeah, it's 
as you said, the legislation is a minefield and emotions and there is just so much complexity to this situation. Um, yes, yes. And, and half an hour, you know, and, and we all know employment law is about the specifics of the situation. Um, and so it's impossible to give a sort of half hour chat that solves those problems, <laughs> sadly. Yeah, segues nicely, then how could people reach out to you at Yes or how can people reach out to you? Um, well, I'm, I'm not doing a huge amount of sort of client facing work anymore because I've, I've just stepped down from being um, joint CEO with my colleague Karen Tigo. Um, I will be carrying on coming into schools um, through Heads Up and doing a legal awareness day. Um, so if you want to contact sort of Heads Up um, and, and book that, that, that's great. But if you need individual uh, school advice um about specific circumstances you can email me uh, my email is ewebster at yes with a double s law.org.uk um or you can look at our website which is www.yes.org.uk sorry yeslaw.org.uk um or and and if you look at our website there's phone numbers on there you can contact one of my colleagues and um, and probably just phoning the office and saying what your concerns are and one of my colleagues is more likely to be able to help than me but i will check my emails every now and then but if you've got an urgent request for advice that's the best way call the office great thank you and you're on twitter i am on twitter twitter um and yes laws on twitter as well um i just trying to think i think i'm at emma k webster i'm not a great tweeter <laughs> okay well yes you are emma k webster and yeslaw.org.uk will be the best places to find you emma thank you so much for your time thank today. you maria take care thanks so much for listening now check out our website pursuitwellbeing.com and take our free teacher anxiety quiz I'll include the link in the description below. The quiz only takes a couple of minutes and you'll get a better understanding of where you are today, plus tips to immediately feel better. If you enjoyed the podcast, please hit the subscribe button in your podcast app. And if you feel inspired, please rate and review it and share it with your friends. I love getting your feedback and learning how we can improve our program.